Hi, this is Chris Westfall, and this is the Financial Executive Podcast. The current proxy season has seen a flurry of proposals that focus on ESG disclosures, especially issues of climate diversity. In fact, shareholders have filed more ESG resolutions in 2022 than in all previous years, according to Morningstar. In this podcast, we speak with Andrew Behar, CEO of the nonprofit As You Sow, a shareholder's advocacy nonprofit that focuses on corporate social responsibility. We discuss the current proxy season and how accounting, auditing, and financial disclosure practices fit into their approach to engaging with public companies. So As You Sow is a 501c3 nonprofit. It was founded in 1992, so we're celebrating our 30th anniversary this year. And our entire mission is around corporate accountability. We work with companies from the viewpoint of shareholders. We represent shareholders. We are shareholders. And we essentially meet with companies. We engage companies on a range of topics, uh, climate change, environmental health, Uh, social issues like racial justice, diversity, equity, inclusion, executive compensation. And we do a lot of research. We're uh, fundamentally uh, underlying all of our work is indicators and then the development of scorecards. So we'll sit down with a company and say, look, on racial justice, we've developed these 57 key performance indicators. We've gathered data on the Russell 1000 Mm -hmm. and your company scores a five. Your direct competitor scores a 32. And here's the five things they're doing that you're not. And here's the cost of doing them. Here's the return on investment for you to become competitive, for you to um, improve your company, to reduce risk. That really the conversations we have with companies are all about the addressing material risk. Mm-hmm. And for the most case, you know, companies, they are very happy. They, we had 188 engagements last year. 102 companies said, thank you. Uh, You guys are like McKinsey for free. Let's get to work. And then the 86 who didn't, we escalated. We filed the shareholder resolution in order to have this conversation with all the shareholders and bring it to a vote. And once we did that, about half of those companies agreed to, uh, to, to make changes. We had a withdrawal agreement. The other half, the 40 or so, went to a vote and we had eight majority votes and a 45% average vote. So mm-hmm. that's how we, we escalate the conversation because we're just concerned about the companies and we want to reduce material risk. And uh, you, like, as you mentioned, you've been doing this for quite a while. Has the dialogue changed over that period? I mean, is it becoming easier to have these conversations or more difficult? I think companies are much more receptive today than they were even five years ago, certainly 10 years ago. And they see us as an ally. They sit on the same side of the table with us, as opposed to, you know, probably five or 10 years ago, they used to see us as oppositional and we're on the opposite side of the table. But they realize that when they adopt the ideas that we're bringing that are based on good, solid data, it might be things that they haven't seen or haven't addressed and that it actually helps the company. We've we've brought things to companies that have turned into major um, major lines of business for them and really differentiated them with, from their competitors mm. and really helped them avoid risk that they hadn't seen coming uh, you know, a year or two out. So I can give you many examples of, of this, how we uh, sat down with a major food company, for example, mm. one of the biggest food companies. And we started to talk to them about regenerative agriculture. This is back in like 2016, 2017. 
And what happened is at first they were very resistant, but once they looked at our research and once they started doing their own research and verified it, they realized that because of climate superstorms, that industrial ag farms, the, the soil was getting washed away in these giant storms, but regenerative ag farms, they were able to absorb the moisture. And so they then signed a, a pledge that they were going to have regenerative agriculture through their entire supply chain in 2019. And the reason for it, and we had a whole webinar about this, was because they needed a resilient supply chain, that the regenerative ag farmers were actually able to deliver the crops in a timely way. And the other ones simply weren't because of the, the shift in the weather patterns, really. And so, and really the climate is really what's, what was shifting. Mm. So that's an example where they became a leader. They started to get more market share. They started to get a lot of customers realize this. And so, um, so in 2019, they were the only ones doing it. When we went and talked to the 17 other food companies in, in 27, uh, two years later, in, in 2021, of the 17 companies, 12 of them had adopted regenerative ag at different varying levels. So emulating the success of this one company. Many examples like that. Would you say that your goal is more to uh, change the mindset and the approach of the companies rather than just the reporting of the companies? So shareholder resolutions are are very restrictive. We can't ask the company to do anything specific. That's ordinary business. You can ask a company to do a report. So in this case, we were asking this company to do a report on the benefits of regenerative agriculture on their supply mm -hmm. chain, on a resilient supply chain. So by requesting that report, now we had already done the report before we went in. Right. We said, this is what we found. We'd like you to verify it. It took them and their scientists a year or two to verify it. They came back and said, yeah, we agree. And then they started to implement it because they saw that it was in the best interest of their business. So that's really the approach. It's how can we identify risks far in advance, help the companies to, to understand what we see and work with us to, um, to help all stakeholders within the company. Um, another example in, in the agriculture space, there was a company, well, almost all the companies were spraying glyphosate. It's a known carcinogen on all their wheat, oats, and beans right before they harvest it. So basically putting carcinogens into their products. And so we approached the board actually, and we said, we think it's just not good business to be presenting our customers. But in this case, there had been some lawsuits a $200 million settlement, a $400 million settlement for people who were spritzing glyphosate in their backyard to knock down some weeds. Right. And we pointed out that every bowl of cereal you are creating, you are putting on the breakfast table has glyphosate in it. This is going to be bigger than tobacco. This is when, when the lawsuits shift from spritzing it in your backyard to actually ingesting it, you're, you have a vulnerability here. They did a whole analysis. Again, it took about two years. And they came around and said, you know what? This is a vulnerability. And they also, their entire supply chain, they said no more glyphosate. They would only buy from farmers who stopped spraying carcinogens on the products right before they harvested them. Again, customers reacted, said, wow, this food is safer to eat. They got a bigger market share. Investors saw it. They started investing in the company. And similarly, uh, there was one company doing it in 2019. By 2021, uh, you know, a dozen companies had followed suit. So 
it's that kind of conversation we have with companies. Mm -hmm. We would rather never file another resolution. We'd rather sit down, have a really robust conversation with a company, share our data and have them say, yeah, let's go and, and think this through. It's only, but again, out of 188, there was only 86 that we had to file a resolution. And even then half of those, once we filed the resolution, uh, we withdrew because the company said, okay, let's go get to work and not waste all these resources on votes and things right, like right. that. Because you, I mean, uh, obviously, um, you know, over a long period of time, there are different themes go on, but what, maybe you could describe the current proxy season and what your efforts are focused on and what you're seeing uh, as when it comes to ESG in the current proxy season. Sure. So probably the biggest one is climate change. I think every company is aware that climate change risk is its supply chain risk. It's investing risk. It's just throughout the entire system. And so we're now talking to several hundred companies about how to reduce their emissions by 5% a year over the next 10 years. And that's going quite well. And the companies who haven't agreed to it, then we've gone to a vote. Uh, just two weeks ago, we had a 91% vote at Boeing. Mm -hmm. Last year, we had a 98% vote at GE. We've been, uh, shareholders really are concerned about this. And, and with good reason, mm -hmm. because it's, it's within the whole system and it's within the control of the companies to actually do these emission reductions and, and to really help, well, the whole planet make their Paris numbers because we have to do this or it's just we're in the middle of uh, of a real change in our whole environment and therefore our whole economy. So climate change is big. And I think that every company will have a climate transition plan in the next few years. I, I think that that's just inevitable. And the sooner that the boards and the companies start to work on it, the better. Um, now, also within our energy group, we look at plastics um, and we actually look at circular economy and waste because of what's happening, you know, ocean plastics. And so brands are having their, their names associated with basically the destruction of the ocean ecosystem. Hmm. So many companies are saying, we agree, we don't want to do that. We're going to be reducing plastics. And so an example, we got big fast food companies and consumer packaged goods companies to agree no more styrofoam, 3 billion styrofoam cups will not be produced this year because of agreements that we got from some of these companies. And styrofoam is one of the worst because it decays in the ocean and breaks down in the fish and marine life think it's food. So that's a big one. I, I mentioned the agriculture ones. Um, on the social side, racial justice is a, is a big issue and every company really needs to address it. But we're finding that they are. We filed 27 resolutions with companies around racial justice. Just get on the path, right. talk to your employees. And 27 companies with, had us agreed to withdrawal. We withdrew all of them. And every one of these companies is actually creating a racial justice policies and practices. And what they're finding is in order to attract the best and the brightest talent, you need to create a culture that is talking about these really important issues, diversity, equity, and inclusion. Uh, egregious CEO pay is another one. The balance, you see these, uh, you know, thousand to one ratios between a CEO and the median worker. Mm. It's, it, these are, these are things that need to be adjusted. It's really out of whack with the West rest of the world. Also, um, one other one that I just want to mention is, is the idea of, of auditing and, and truthful disclosure. 
Mm-hmm. And we're going to be seeing uh, we, we filed a resolution last year at sorry, at major two major oil companies. And what we said was this was in your um, in your audit, in your um, annual report, you stated that climate that the climate and emissions risk are material, which means it's financial. And then you went and you did the disclosure of your emissions, not in any formal document. And so what our resolution said is, if your audit committee accepted an audit where something that you've said is material is not included in the audit, it's not verified data, then the audit committee is really in breach, that the audit committee needs to insist that the auditors do this. And so and these, these resolutions got a 49 and a 48% vote, but it really aligns with what the SEC is doing. The new climate disclosure rule is saying to companies, we want to establish trust between a company and its owners. And so when you have a material disclosure like climate information, it has to be stated, has to be verified, and then it has to be put in the audit. So treated like financial um, like financial data. Yeah, I, I want to delve into a little bit about that because that that's certainly something that, you know, is a big discussion within FEI's membership and, and how to think about that. What do you say to, you know, corporate um, people working in corporate um, audit and, and uh, accounting and, um, uh, you know, it, just in the industry about the complexity of the reporting of climate data? You know, there doesn't seem to be much agreement on what the data means, how to quantify it. So what do you say to the argument that, I mean, if there's no uh, real concurrence uh, in the market about the approach, how can they be expected to implement that approach? Well, first of all, most companies are reporting to CDP, the the Climate Disclosure Project, their emissions. Mm -hmm. Um, most of these are estimates. There are also many, many companies have what are called science-based targets. Mm-hmm. So I think most companies have actually thought this through and that they actually have pretty good set of data. They're not necessarily disclosing it because they've never been required to disclose it. But the new rule is going to say, whatever you got, disclose it, have a third party come in and verify it. Once it's verified, then put it in the audit just like you would financial information because it is financial information. It is material information. Mm. I think that as companies start to realize that material information is financial information because shareholders needed to make financial decisions, uh, I think it's just a, a change of mindset and that the data reporting will get better and better each year. I think the first year it's going to be pretty much what CDP has, which are going to be estimates. The People who are going to come in to verify and the, you know, the audit firms are going to start to get better and better at auditing the data. The third party experts are going to get better and better at this. I mean, ultimately, a lot of people are saying, you know, scope three is so com- complex, mm-hmm. but scope three is somebody else's scope one and two. So if, you, you know, do your best is what I'd say is, you know, the first year the SEC that this rule is going to go into effect. Do your best. Do what you're doing with CDP. Have it verified. You're going to find, okay, you're pretty good. Not great. Put it in your audit. It's going to get better. There's going to 
it, next year, I think it's going to get better and better. You know, three years out, I think we're going to start to have real solid numbers. Now, the reason we want solid numbers is because these are the benchmarks we're using to say we're going to decrease by 5%. When the numbers that you're decreasing from are just vague and estimated and, you know, some of them are in CSR reports and some of them are, you know, in on the website, you just, there's no way to, for shareholders to even find them. Mm-hmm. It's really problematic. And so you just don't, no one knows what's what right now. And so this will begin to bring some order to shareholders' decision-making. And the companies who get ahead of this, the companies who say, yeah, we're going to embrace this. We're going to do our best job at this and we're going to get better each year. And here's our plan. Yeah. What would you say to, you know, I definitely, I'm sorry. I saw you broke up there a second. I'm sorry. Go ahead. Shareholders are not expecting perfection. What we do expect is honest disclosure of where you are and a plan of how you're going to get to this, this target, this 5% reduction a year over the next 10 years. So it's the plan and then it's the disclosure. And, and if you don't hit your milestone, then explain why you need to make a course correction. It's, it's really about trust. That's, that's the, the whole SEC new rule is just, is there trust in the data between the company and its shareholders? And I believe that is the most fundamental purpose of the SEC. That's why it was created you know, after the Great Depression is to create that trust. And so now they're just starting to enforce the most fundamental things. So the companies who embrace it, the companies who get ahead of it are the ones who shareholders are going to go, that's great. They got nothing to hide. They're being honest with us. It's not perfect now, but I can see where they're going to, their targets for the next year, two years, three years. And I'm going to invest in that because I'm investing in a management team that is being honest with me, that is bringing me in and, and telling me what's really going on. Yeah, and I certainly hear what you're saying, you know, and and I, I I think you know that's a lot of discussion that's happening in the community right now. I, I think some would say, and just thinking about it, that um, you know, in an environment where um, you know, let's say, take this out of um, climate disclosure, apply it to any other type of like you were saying, like climate disclosures or is material onto the financial disclosure. Um, if you um, you know, uh, if you go ahead with a financial disclosure that, you know, you can't quantify or you can't, you don't understand the data with, but, you know, just go out and do it and, and good effort, right? You made an effort towards that. You know, I would think that the preparers would think, well, that opens us up to tremendous regulatory liability, tremendous legal liability. If we go out of something we're not sure of, right? We're not confident in the data. We're not I confident. Think if in- you... If you explain your methodology of how you gathered the data, you explain the unknowns, that is, I mean, that's honest disclosure is really what an, what an audit is all about. I, I, I disagree. I think that it actually not disclosing is what opens you up to the liability. That if you actually are truthful, if you actually say this is our based on our best efforts, this is our methodology of gathering the data, and this is how we're going to improve it over the next years, I think you're going to be ahead of the curve. And the other thing is that there's now with SASB merging with European standards, there's going to be ISBI, the International Sustainable Standards Board, definitions of what is material. 
Mm-hmm. So I think companies should prepare for honest, accurate, verified disclosure of everything that's material, because anything that's material is by definition financial. And so it is shareholders' rights to see that data and to see that information. So think about material disclosure in a different way. Think about shareholders as your partners and not somebody you're trying to hide things from. It's it's a shift. It's a mind shift. It's it's definitely a shift in the way to think about these things. And and I believe that the more straightforward, the more honest uh, a company can be, the less uh, legal risk they're going to have. Yeah, yeah, and I, I certainly hear that. I think I think it's you know from the preparer's perspective, it's less about. Um, you know, trying to hide something from anybody, but misstating something that, um, you know, or not meeting an expectation or putting something out there, uh, put, put something forward uh, that doesn't meet the expectations of, you know, this is not what we wanted sort of thing. So I don't, I don't think it's about like um, hiding anything. It's about um, trying to understand what's required. But in any event, I, I see that. Learning. There's no question there's going to be a learning curve. And also, even on the auditor's side, I mean, from yeah. the four auditors, they need qualified staff to be able to evaluate this. And that's going to also take, you know, take a few cycles to uh, to have in place. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I, I hear that a lot from, uh, you know, preparers about the resources uh, not only professional, but the data resources that are needed in order to address this and and, and the time it's going to take. You you mentioned the SEC proposal um, and, you know, wanted to ask you specifically around the targets around net zero. It seems that, you know, from a prepared perspective, perspective the net zero um, definition is, is kind of difficult to pin down, you know, especially when it comes to things like carbon offsets. What are your thoughts about that? When we talk to companies, we say we don't want to talk about offsets. We don't. We, <laughs> offsets are not emission reductions. Offsets are a whole other thing, and they should be discussed, but not in the frame of five percent emission reduction a year over the next ten years. Hmm. Emissions reductions are from operations. Offsets are some are some are great. Some are not so great. It's a mix. Uh, we're actually right now preparing a whole study on offsets because it's very confusing what mm-hmm. what they are. So when we go in to, to and sit down with a company to talk about again five percent emission reduction a year over the next ten years and an annual disclosure how you're doing against it, we use what are called the CA one hundred plus benchmarks. Mm-hmm. So the carbon um, the, the climate action one hundred is 66 trillion now of assets Mm -hmm. that has signed on to this set of benchmarks. So I would recommend to companies, and that's what As You So uses, this set of benchmarks because you got 66 trillion of assets that are going to be voting to, have already voted to approve this. We're actually, there's a a centralized global uh, group that's forming right now to be rating and ranking each company on these benchmarks on on a global set of standards. And that's going to be, we, we put out a net zero report a couple of months ago, a very similar set of, um, of reporting standards from our report that the global group is going to be using. Mm-hmm. 
what, what I wanted to sort of wrap it all up in is what are your thoughts on the future of, of um, you know, ESG um, when it comes to corporate governance? And, you know, particularly because, you know, there's a lot of discussion about where it's going to come from. Is it going to come from the private market and investors? Is it going to come from uh, regulation? Um, and, you know, is that dependent on which um, which country you're talking about? But maybe, maybe your thoughts on that. So we're seeing the European Union is really getting um, really addressing this on um, on a really systemic level, like they're coming out with actual definitions, actual, mm-hmm. uh, you know, codifying a glossary, an agreed upon glossary of terms. So if somebody says low carbon, everybody knows what they mean. They say fossil free, everyone knows what they mean. If they say, you know, just just what all these things, you know, have, it could have so many interpretations. Right. So. You know, coming up with that um, that glossary, that set of different classifications, is really important. Just so we're all speaking about the same things, hmm. and so I think Europe is way ahead. I think also, you know, we're we're very aware, and we're actually um, helping them to, to to sort of think through a lot of stuff. Is is the whole notion of what is sustainable? What is a sustainable mutual fund? What does it mean? Can can you have a sustainability? Uh, can you be called a sustainable fund if you own companies that are outside of ESG, but you're engaging them to improve? That's that's a, a very right. big question. Now, and my answer is yes, so long as it's notated that that is why they're holding the companies and that they're actually that they're actually doing the engagement that it's that it's actually active engagement that it's not just we're having lunch with them and having a conversation. Uh, so, or are you doing, are, is your mutual fund going to be excluding them? Or are you going to be do, using best of class? So all these words and all these terms need to be defined. And that within, particularly if you're going to have a mutual fund, just needs to be clearly laid out in the prospectus. Mm-hmm. There's no right or wrong. It's just clarity. Because right now, Prospectus language does not reflect the holdings. That is something that we know. I think I mentioned to you the report that we did where we looked at 90 mutual funds with ESG in their name and 60 of them get a D or an F on ESG. And when we did the analysis with a group of data scientists, they just said there's just no correlation between the words in the prospectus and yeah. the holdings. That's that's a gap. You know, that's, that's a labeling problem. It's not an ESG problem. Um, so in any case, where, where I guess we're answering your question is, I think the European Union is making steps that are, that are ahead of the United States. Hmm. I'm very optimistic about next Wednesday when the SEC comes out with their new fund naming rules. Mm-hmm. I think that that's something that's been worked on for many, many years. They, they had requests for information back in March of 2020, and this will be the first actual draft rules that, that we've started to see. So that's, I think, really exciting. I think that's going to actually address some of the things that Elon Musk brought up this week. Why is Exxon and Chevron and Devon on an, in an ESG fund? Well, it's a naming problem, not an ESG problem. Mm. Why is Tesla not 
anymore in that fund because they don't do any disclosure. That disclosure is required so that they can actually rate and rank. Right. Uh, so these are really fundamental things. So I think we're entering a period now after 30 years of people working on ESG where enough money is flowing into this area that regulations are needed. Uh, you know, we've seen folks like Trillium and Green Century and all of the U.S. SIF membership, PACs and Parnassus, doing great job, like actually developing really thoughtful products in um, and, and really analyzing what, what does it mean to reduce risk along environmental, social and governance vectors. So, but now everybody else jumped in because they saw, oh, it's a marketing opportunity. So now we need regulation. And I think that that's a good thing. I think that um, it's going to clarify it for your average investor. I think that people are going to become more aware of how they're investing and what their power is. I think they're going to stop abdicating their power so easily. So I'm, I'm very optimistic at the moment. Yeah, and I certainly appreciate that, and I certainly appreciate the the steps that you know the European uh, standard setters and regulators are making. Um, but you know the 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 majority of the capital markets you know reside in the U.S. and you know it doesn't seem to be that um, a consistent a message coming out. Now, I mean, um, certainly after the Blacklock Blackrock letter came out. Uh, I guess a year and a half ago or two years ago, um, every, you know, everybody stood up, stood up and took notice and, uh, you know, said that, you know, investors are all going this way and, and we're going to have to sort of figure that out. But there isn't any consistency on, on the regulatory side. You know, there's still a lot of debate going on. So how do you how do you navigate that in a world where, you know, um, investors are expecting disclosure? But there's no sort of framework around that disclosure in the U.S. anyway. Or, or do you disagree with the supposition? I disagree with the supposition. I think it's been two years since the World Economic Forum declared the fourth industrial age and that we're now all operating under stakeholder capitalism. We have the new SEC climate disclosure rule that is actually attempting. What it does is it creates trust between corporations and their owners by saying you have to disclose accurately, have it verified and be part of the audit. The new rule on naming that comes out on Wednesday should further clarify the issue. So I think we're actually making good progress that these things do take time and that perhaps it is overdue uh, because of so much money flowing into ESG. But 10 years ago, when one out of every 12 investing dollars went into ESG, nobody seemed to really care because everything that was named ESG was accurately ESG. Um, again, it was from Green Century, you know, Trillium, Parnassus, Walden, every all of the members of US SIF were quite conscious and quite accurate. It's only in the last few years where one out of every two dollars that's invested that Vanguard and BlackRock and all those folks jumped in and they renamed their funds uh, ESG, but didn't change the holdings, that there's problems that they abused the naming mm. uh, structure by saying, I can have a fossil-free fund so long as it's less than 20% fossil fuels. That is true. Under the current naming um, rules, 
and we we tried to sue Vanguard about this and we lost because they are absolutely within their legal rights. It's just that the rules don't make sense for hmm. where we're at today. But, you know, five or 10 years ago, the rules made sense. So I think that the regulatory um, work is catching up. We also had four years where the regulatory regulars try to go the opposite way. They yeah. put in new rules to make it harder to file a resolution. They made just, they changed the ERISA rules just to make it confusing for everybody. They just tried to complexify and do as much you know damage to, uh, to the idea of risk reduction as possible. So I, given, you know, the Biden administration's only been there for a couple of years, I think they're making good headway. Yeah. And I appreciate that. But I mean, taken from the perspective of somebody who's sitting, you know, whether it's in the controller's office or in the accounting office of a large corporation, you know, they look at this and say, okay, well, you know, the uh, this administration is making some progress in the, and certainly has uh, been uh, making some changes, but that could all change in two years. And then we're back in the same position where, as you said, the previous administration was pushing back on these things and was making it more difficult. And how do you, you know, for someone who's putting the, together these disclosures, and it's not, you know, it's not an annual thing. It's something you have to staff up for and plan for over the longer term. How do you operate in this environment and what do you look to? And I, I guess that's sort of my question about okay. is the private market leading this or is, you know. I think that private market is actually relieved to be able to have rules that require them to accurately disclose material information. Hmm. have it verified and have it put in the audit. It simplifies their lives. Hmm. They, they can know where they stand. Uh, an example of this, I can tell you, because we were very involved in the Dodd-Frank 1502, which was the conflict mineral rules. Mm -hmm. So when those came out, it took a couple of years to negotiate exactly what they meant. But once they were embedded into the systems within every electronics company, every toy company, every car company, anyone who was using tin, tantalum, tungsten, and gold, it became a way for them to show we do not have slavery in our supply chain. Mm -hmm. And it became a system that they, that they did every year. Now, when the previous administration came in and said, you no longer have to report on this, they all kept reporting. Mm -hmm. Why? Because it was a way for them to assure their their customers that we still don't have slavery in our supply chain, even though, you know, we don't have to report on this, we're going to still do it. From our point of view, we were reporting on all of the, these disclosures and we thought they were going to stop and they didn't. And we talked to the companies and they said, because they're not difficult to do, we have systems in place. It's good for our brand. It's also good for just our governance overall. And so I think that companies want consistency mm. I think companies want to have honest disclosure. I think that's what they crave. And that when sometimes the regu regulations, um, you know, force that to happen, it's actually a relief for the companies because otherwise there's just questions in the marketplace and no one knows what's going on and, and they're doing good work and they're not getting credited for it because, 
there's there's no system to report it. So um, I ultimately believe in the desire of the people working at these companies to want to have a clean, good product that's competitive in the marketplace and that satisfies their customers' needs. So good, honest disclosure is, is critical to that. Great. Those are my questions. I appreciate taking the time. Absolutely.